This is episode 142 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Gabby Constantinescu. Gabby is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Alberta and CPO and co-founder of a startup called True Angle Medical Technologies. She is a clinician researcher by training with over a decade of experience assessing and treating swallowing difficulties. In her doctoral work, Gabby was a recipient of several awards, including Avenue Edmonton's Top 40 Under 40, the Clinician Fellowship from Alberta Innovates Health Solutions, and the Dr. Alice E. Wilson Award from the Canadian Federation of University Women. Her doctoral research directly influenced the design and development of a mobile swallowing therapy system called Mobility. Gabby's vision is to see patients ultimately get the help they need when they need it, and when she isn't typing away at her laptop, she loves sitting around a campfire or exploring a new hiking trail. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This episode is sponsored by Craig Goldslager of Utterly Financial. Craig is not your typical financial advisor. He works exclusively with us, SLPs, and private practitioners across the country to create simple, actionable financial plans. Craig is the spouse of a busy SLP. He knows we didn't learn about finances when we earned our C's. Nobody told you what to do about your student loan debt, how to protect your income, ways to save and invest, or even how to start or sell your private practice. Working with Craig and his team will not only improve your finances, but it will allow you to free up time and energy to focus on your family, your work, and what you love most. I know many of you, many of us, are stressed about our finances. Craig is opening up his calendar exclusively to listeners of the Swallow Your Pride podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. That's utterlyfinancial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y, financial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. Hello, Gabby. Hello, Teresa. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So it's a bit of a different uh, feeling to be on the other side now. It is. It is. But you know what? This is, you are 100% the reason I love doing this because just meeting such cool people that are doing such amazing work in our field. So I'm so glad you reached out. So (laughs) (laughs) great. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Okay. So my name is Gabby and uh, my last name is Constantinescu, which I always think it's a cruel joke to become a speech pathologist and have an impossible to say last name. <laughs> yeah, yep. Um, I uh, finished my degree at uh, the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. So I'm a Canadian. <laughs> so thanks for having me for, on the show. Uh, yes, of course. That. I worked with head and neck cancer patients for about 10, 11 years. So I graduated 2008. And then up until about 2013, I started to get a little bit, uh, I started to miss the university, so to speak. I think we all kind of start to dream to uh, of going back at one point or another. So I was fortunate enough to have a mentor who was very supportive and took me on. So I started a PhD 
in 2013, wrapped that up uh, 2018, and now I wear a bit of many different hats. I'm a clinician, but also a researcher, and more recently an entrepreneur, so all sorts of uh, dabbling, I suppose, but still very much related to dysphagia. Awesome. Awesome. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I hopefully dysphagia awareness. <laughs> I, first of all, I want to say I love the name of your uh, of your podcast, Swallow Your Pride. It's it's so nice. It has that little pun of yes. swallowing, but also it kind of pokes at that ego that we all have sometimes. I'm like, am I doing well enough? But also I am, and I don't know. So I, I love the play on words there. So with that, I wanted to jump into a, a dysphagia awareness because of the timing. So yeah. um, as most of your listeners probably know, June is Dysphagia Awareness Month, and that's why I reached out to you because we recently completed a study uh, looking at how how much awareness there is of swallowing difficulties out there in the general public. So I imagine most of your listeners have had this experience when they talk about what they do, the person on the other side is like, oh, swallowing? I had no idea that that was even a problem or something that someone studied. Yeah. So we do get that a lot. And so we wanted to have a look at, well, how much awareness is out there in, in dysphagia <clears throat> or of dysphagia, pardon me. So I guess what inspired this work, there were a few events that kind of happened together and then we're like, okay, we're going to start this study. One of them, I have to uh, give credit to Dr. Jess Pusenia, who wrote Dysphagia Cafe article on dysphagia awareness. So she ran a little survey in our hospital in Boston and found that I think only 11% or something very, very low like that had an awareness of what dysphagia was. And not only that, more alarming, I think, and she even stated in, in her post was that a lot of healthcare professionals didn't know what dysphagia was or that swallowing difficulties were a thing. So that kind of stuck with me as I was doing my work as a PhD student. The other event that happened was I was on a bus and just leaving my work, going home. <laughs> so the bus is right in front of the hospital. And this woman steps on, and as she steps onto this busy bus, she starts to have a seizure. And seizures, I think, we're all very aware of them. We see them on TV all the time. They're in movies. So she starts to have a seizure. She falls to the ground. A couple of people help her and comfort her. And I remember this woman um, next to me leans over, and she was like, oh, is she drunk? And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if... Something that's so prevalent in movies and TV shows, like we're hit with the symptoms and how a, an epileptic seizures looks like all the time. What chance do our patients have of even knowing that other or having the LA public know what they're going through? So I thought, okay, this is <laughs> this is not good. And then kind of the event that pushed me into, okay, we have to, we have to look at this was a patient who was very near and dear to me. And he had a very, very impaired swallow. He had had head and neck cancer, surgery, radiation therapy, the works. And he still loved food, believe it or not. Uh, he, he, his relationship to food hadn't changed. Despite all that, he still wanted to, to eat and taste food. 
So he'd always come into our sessions and share his, his experiences with the real world out there. And one of the stories was that he went to a restaurant with his wife and he was like, you know, this is my favorite soup at this restaurant. I just want to taste it. And I know I can't swallow it, but I'll just discreetly spit it in my neck. And so he was like, I, I'm going to put it in my mouth, swish it around, and then I'll discreetly spit it in, in this cloth napkin. And the table next to him, they saw this and they got grossed out and they took their things and they left and moved to a different table. But being who he was, he used this as a teaching opportunity. Not too many people can do this. So he went there and explained what happened. And of course, people, like if this happened to you and I, would be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I had no idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, they're like, thank you for letting us know. We didn't know this was a thing. So he's kind of taken it on himself to, to educate people. And the other thing that happened to the same gentleman, I'm sure all our patients get it, but he was very open about it, was that he went, he tried to go on a, on a trip, on a plane trip. And the flight was delayed, and he said that he had to, um, so he was on a feeding tube, a peg tube, he had to take his feeds before the flight, because he couldn't eat at a restaurant. So he was like, well, I want to do this discreetly, I don't want to scare anybody. So he went to the bathroom to have his feeding tube and put in his feeds. And someone reported him that he was doing drugs in the bathroom. Oh, good. Lo and behold, he's doing his feeds in the bathroom, and the yeah. security comes and is about to arrest him. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, This is just how I eat. Yeah. So <clears throat> all of these events kind of like sat there and percolated. And finally, I had the opportunity to work with some students, and they ran a, a survey across. Well, we tried to spread it everywhere, but we mostly had Canadian respondents, of course just to see, well, what, what do people know about dysphagia? And if we were to do a campaign like dysphagia awareness, do we even need it? Like, do they actually know a lot about dysphagia? Or are we still sort of behind and need to do a better job of advocating for our patients? And like I mentioned to you, I, I think as clinicians, we sort of have that dual role of not just treating and assessing patients, but we also have to think about how do we make their lives easier, like right now? And one way to do that, I think, is by educating the public so that when they do go out there, it's just a little bit easier for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that, Gabby. I, I hate that the poor man has been through so much, but I think there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of things in our world that can be confused or misconstrued. You know, I, I know before I even, I have a son with special needs now, and before I had kids, I, you know, kids would be loud and crazy in public. And you're just like, ah, how rude, control your child, you know? And now that I have my son with special needs, I'm like, gosh, I, you know, I hate that he's disruptive or things like that, you know? And it's like, I wish everyone could just have a little bit of grace for everybody, but (laughs) it's interesting times we're living in right now, but. Exactly. Yeah. We all have different backgrounds and you don't, you don't ever know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. 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 And I think too, with our patients and so our patients are head and neck cancer patients, but I don't want to just talk about, head yeah. and neck cancer. I'm sure this um, applies to other patient populations. The thing is with them, and they say this all the time too, is that you just, 
beaten cancer, you know, and to go out there and to be stigmatized and down is just another battle that they have to fight. Whereas most like breast cancer, prostate cancer, once you beat it, people are like, yeah, congrats. And our patients are are saying, well, and they can hide it with their shirt and, and their pants, but I walk with it on my face and right, right. Get stopped and asked like, why aren't you eating? Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I do feel for them. <laughs> yeah. What this also made me think of, I was in, I was in the Orlando airport this summer with my two kids, my son, and then also my, I just had a newborn and I had to go, I had to go pump for breast milk for her. And I found one of those little pod things, you know, the airports have these little places basically these little mom places where you can go breastfeed or pump or whatever and I was waiting and waiting and waiting I'm like gosh this person has been in there for forever and finally a man came out and my husband was like what was he doing in there you know oh my gosh I can't believe there was a man in there and part of me was like I don't know why he needed that room who knows why he needed to use that room you know and I and it, it this completely reminded me of that I mean what if he had a feeding tube and he needed to go do his feed you know yeah. It doesn't have to be just a room for women to breastfeed. It can be a room for anybody who needs some sort of feeding. Right, right. I hadn't thought of that until just Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I I try as much as I can to remember that there is a second piece to what we do, which is advocacy. And so June... June dysphagia month, I guess, is a good reminder for all of us to check in, even with our peers, and see hey, do you know what swallowing is? Do you know what some of the symptoms are? If you saw someone with this, would you, with the feeding tube, let's say, would you know what it is? Yeah, part of the, um, I do some work with the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders and part of their June campaign is really targeting, not targeting, that was the right word, really looking at the caregiver role in in all of this as well, because there's such a a burden on the caregivers to have to help with this. And, And, you know, advocacy is just pretty much the biggest part of what, we have to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure yeah my my grandpa recently had a stroke and I think sometimes the rest of the family is kind of like wow just taking care of him and and the people who are there around him are like no there's so much more to to someone who has had a stroke so yeah you're right the caregiver burden can be another piece yeah yeah <laughs> so I mean one of the interesting things that we found that was still shocking to me knowing knowing what I knew from patients and from Jess's uh, a post in Dysphagia Cafe was that most when we asked people what what are some things that you know about dysphagia management most people answered feeding tubes which I'm not I can't say that I'm overly surprised about but I still was still was I don't know how to explain it I guess I can see how that could be but I'm still surprised that feeding tubes were the number one thing that people knew about dysphagia management we had about 400 respondents and only six mentioned exercises exercises. (laughs) which as someone who's deep into um, dysphagia therapy and, and biofeedback and that kind of thing. Kind of like, what? <laughs> how how do we expect people to even come for therapy or seek therapy if only six out of four hundred? And I should mention here, there's from our respondents. <clears throat> pardon me, about a third were healthcare professionals, and two thirds were non-healthcare professionals. And we eliminated speech language pathologists just to kind of give okay. you and your audience a 
um, an idea of who our respondents were. Yeah, so that was that was an interesting finding and a bit of a shocker. Yeah. <laughs> well, considering yeah. too how expensive um, feeding tubes are, I think the last time I saw like a number that said feeding tubes in the States in 2001 were about $30,000. Uh, in, in today's dollars, that's about $46,000 yeah. or something. I don't know if I have my numbers right, but yeah, just considering per feeding tube, the cost associated with, yeah. you, you yeah. can't see my air quotes, but with dysphagia management <laughs> and how much therapy you could actually provide with that money and, and avoid complications. Yeah, I, I was just, I was talking to my friend Hillary this morning. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. It's a nonprofit organization that she started basically to just help get any kind of supplies that anybody that has dysphagia would need. And this morning, she just got a huge shipment of tube feedings that I guess for some reason, this the, the distributor or something couldn't sell it, but it was still good. So she was like, I have thousands of tube feedings. Do, do you know anybody that needs them? And I was like, ah, <laughs> so, Interesting. so I love, yeah, I, I love what she's doing, but yeah, she just said some of the calls that she gets from people are just, you know, devastating just to think of this is how they have to eat, but they can't afford it or they you know have difficulty even blending the food to get it to the right consistency or it's, it's mm -hmm. yeah it's rough it is yeah we we do put a lot on our patients yeah and to expect them to, to kind of understand all the all the things that we're throwing at them what first of all why do you have a swallowing problem second of all how do you manage the swallowing problem and third can you ever get back to where you were and how do we do that yeah and to get them into our clinics with with the intensity or frequency that we need to see them that I don't know what your experience is in the states but here it's it's very hard to see anybody for intensive rehab for swallowing it's mostly on a con consultative basis so oh wow I didn't know that We'll see someone for assessment and then we'll give some recommendations. We might give them exercises on a piece of paper and then send them home. They might come back a month later and try to figure it out. Okay, oh what, have you done, what have you not done? And I would say for a very, very small percentage of patients, do we actually get to see them in clinic maybe two or three times a week? Oh, wow. Maybe is that just feedback? <laughs> yeah. Is that just, just the payer model doesn't recognize that the, there's a big need for this or? To be honest, I'm not sure what, what the barriers are at a high level. At a clinical level, I know it's my time and patient time. So a lot of patients can't come into the clinic to see us, um, especially our rural patients. Parking is very expensive, believe it or not, at the hospital. Yeah, they can crazy. Thirty, I don't know um, what the parking is in the states, but but thirty dollars, anywhere from fourteen to thirty dollars for parking. Yeah, so it's really just down to our time, their time, uh, availability of technology. So I'm quite excited with some of this mobile health uh, opportunities that are swimming around and that I've dabbled in as well. As well, the telehealth. Uh, yeah, practices. I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah. With this whole COVID-19. I was reading this article that was not dysphagia related at all, but they were talking about how what's going on around us right now with, with COVID is really accelerating the trajectory or, or where we were about to go anyway. So yeah. 
um, I was thinking about telehealth because we had started as a practice to, to dabble in telehealth and some of us were doing it, some of us were kind of maybe scared of the technology, but now that we're forced into it, we're really having to embrace it and understand it and look at the literature and um, I've seen some posts from Asha even and some of our own bodies here in, in Canada advocating for telehealth and talking about what clinicians can do when offering treatment and even assessment by telehealth. So that's exciting to see. Yeah. So so there's so you have much more freedom with being able to do telehealth and obviously you do seeing seeing patients in person. Do they is is there restrictions on the telehealth? like for how many visits you can see and things like that? Not for me personally. So I've right now I'm doing more of um, product development. We're working on a mobile health system called Mobility. So that's kind of been my focus in the last couple of years. But before we were doing, before this COVID stuff, we were doing some telehealth with rural patients and we, uh, and it was prehab actually for um, head and neck cancer patients. Oh, cool. So we were, our clinicians um, were, running groups. So they were having some patients be in clinic and some patients be on telehealth. Yeah, there were some, I don't know what to call them, drawbacks <laughs> with, as you can see, the timing, you're waiting for one person to respond. But overall, it gave those patients the opportunity to engage in, in treatment that they otherwise would not have been able to engage in. And I wouldn't say, I, I would go as far as saying that they were receiving equitable care as the, as the patients that were, uh, were being seen with us in clinic. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think there's such a huge role for telehealth as far as dysphagia, like you said, both prehab and, and rehab. And I hate that, you know, here in, in the States, just because of this COVID stuff, telepractice was finally accepted. And it's something that we can do now for speech and language, but they still did not recognize the dysphagia codes. So um, yeah, I read just, about that. Yeah. Uh, maddening. Yes. So. But hopefully it'll speed things up. Hopefully, yeah. This has all brought it into light, right? So yeah. we wouldn't even be talking about this as soon as we are if this hadn't happened. So right. I guess it's mixed blessings overall. Yes. I, I love your silver linings outlook, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you asked about what I had been involved in. And even though I haven't been doing telehealth, Recently, I have used this mobile health in a clinical or research setting. So what we did is we ran a feasibility study to see can patients even use mobile health on their own at home. So we recruited 20 uh, head and neck cancer patients and we sent them home with uh, our device, which uses surface electromyography, so SCMG biofeedback. The device itself uh, sticks under their chin. And it transmits that EMG information to your phone, to an app, wirelessly. So that's kind of nice. We're taking the wires out. And then they can see the, their, um, I guess, their muscle activity, for, if you want to call it that. And so we sent them home. They had it for about six weeks. And what we found was that their adherence to the treatment program, which was very intense, it was a daily treatment program of 72 trials a day, they adhered really, really well. So we were very excited. And uh, yeah, I'd like to, to replicate that study with a bigger patient population to make sure it wasn't, wasn't just me or it wasn't just that one yeah. time, just those yeah. patients. Yeah. yeah. Do so. you think, I have a few 
a few questions, a few theories about that. Let me ask you first, are you able to see see how they're doing like on your end during it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes and no. So I can see how they adhere to the treatment program. I couldn't actually see the tracings of their swallow. Okay. Yeah. So we did a, about an hour of training at the beginning of their treatment block. So kind of walk them through, like, this is how you use the app. This, uh, show me how you use the app. Um, this is how you do the Effortful or Mendelssohn or whatever. Now show me how you do these things. The typical clinician stuff, right? Like getting buy-in, you know, this is why you're doing these things. So that was, I guess, tutorial at the beginning with the app. Then I sent them home and I only checked in with them about once a week. And it was really left up to their preference if they wanted to call in or text. Um, some of these patients, because they have speech difficulties as well, have a tough time wanting to talk on the phone. So they'll prefer texting or emailing. Yeah. In any case, I remember this article from Shin where she did talk about adherence. And one of the ways that she had oper operationalized adherence in her article was by demonstrating I guess, demonstrating that you were competent with the exercises. And when she asked patients, okay, show me how you do an effortful, show me how you do a Mendelssohn. If they weren't able to demonstrate that they had done it correctly at home, she marked them as non-adherent. And when she used that definition, she found that only 13% of them were adherent, which is yeah. mind boggling. So then I thought, you know, as a PhD student, you're kind of trying to like keep it all together. So it's like, okay, well, I need to make sure that these patients know how to do these exercises at home. So that was one of the reasons I was checking in with them once a week. I'd be like, okay, tell me how you do the Mendelssohn. Tell me how you do the, this exercise and this other exercise. And then just checking in to make sure they had all the supplies they needed. But other than that, all I could see at my end was they've done this many of this exercise, this many of this exercise, and this many of their, this exercise. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's adequate. I, the reason I'm asking, I'm working with a coach to try to get this baby weight off because I just had a baby and I can't seem to like get motivated to get this baby weight off. So I hired a coach and I have to like, track my food and my workouts and like she checks in on me and I'm like crap you can see if I enter my stuff and she's like yeah and I'm like oh my god <laughs> at first I hated it but then you know she's like I, I'm here to help like I'm here to coach you like if you're you know I'm not gonna yell at you if you eat chocolate that's fine <laughs> so but I was like yeah. oh my god but like the last two or three weeks I've been it's totally motivated me because I'm like, oh my God, I, I got to log it in. I got to show her I had a salad today. <laughs> it's so much You're absolutely right. It's so much easier to be accountable to someone else than to yourself. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is about it, but you're right. I remember giving a talk. This was at the very, very beginning of my PhD when I was sharing these ideas with other people. And there was a patient in the audience and she put up their hand and she was like, excuse me, but I don't want my clinician to know what I'm doing at home because I always want them to think I'm doing all my exercises and that's not always the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. like a rebel in that. I'm like, I don't want her knowing what I'm eating, but <laughs> then on the other hand, I'm like, it's for my own good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think some patients, when I ask them, you know, do you think you would have adhered to this program? 
if I wasn't on the other end checking in every day and some of them were like yes yes I would have I don't I don't know yeah Um, but some of them were like no you know what it did help knowing that you were on the other end and sometimes I'd get little messages like I'm sorry I was sick yesterday so I didn't get to do my exercises (laughs) yeah oh I love that I I think that's great yeah I, I I love that I mean adherence is just such a huge thing with you know, even on the big picture, just any sort of rehab protocol. So yeah, it really, it really is. It was one of the topics that I started to get interested in, in my research. I started off by being interested in gamification, which was this buzzword that was floating around when I first started uh, my PhD. And then it kind of became more about adherence than gamification. One of the, at the time I was kind of reading all these books about flow and flow is written by um Mihaly Czech Mihaly I'm sure some of the people listening to this will will know him um so he talks about you know you get in when when you find your your activity that you're super interested in you get into this uh, mindset where you're just able to tune out the rest of the world and you're so into whatever you're doing kind of like puzzling at Christmas right like the, the activity is so well set, like the challenge of the activity is so well set to the level of skill that you have that you're now able to immerse yourself in, in the activity. So I thought, well, why can't we do that with swallowing? <laughs> yeah. So, so many, so many of my patients have complained that the exercises are super boring and they don't want to do them. And I say, like, well, why can't we make them like a flow activity? Is that is that too much to dream for? <laughs> and, and then I was thinking, well, maybe we could use apps and mobile health and gamification to kind of engage patients and find out what that, in schools, they call it zone of proximal development. So that next level from where my skill set's at that you're going to challenge me to, to get to. So that was one of the things that was floating around in my head. And then I don't know if you've ever seen Angela Duckworth's uh, TED Talk. She's a teacher yeah. and, and she kind of put forward this whole grit. Yes, idea. I love that book. So I was yeah. Really, yeah, yeah. I was really into it at the time too. And I was like, yeah, if anyone's ever showing grit, it's dysphagia patients because they have to stick to these long-term goals that require deliberate practice all the time. And aside from PhD students <laughs> and clinicians battling uphill, it's also the patients who have to to have grit to really yeah. stick with it. So it's trying to like piece all these ideas together and, and plot them in with how do we how do we motivate adherence and how do we get patients to really stick to their exercises? Because that really is the the dose of yeah. the treatment they're getting. So we can't yeah. you and I can't sit here and say, well the treatment didn't work if we don't really know the dose of that treatment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. It's so important. So did you end up add, adding any sort of gamification component to the app? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's funny you asked that. <laughs> so my my supervisor, uh, Jenna Riga, she's like, well, you need to ask patients what they want first. And she was right. I, I had all these ideas of what I wanted. <laughs> she's like, you need to ask them. So we did a, an interview where I went and asked patients what they wanted and I had all these paper prototypes, some that were just the basic line going up and down that we're all familiar with, all the way up to like you could build castles and 
you know, use your swallows to do this and that. Um, we had one prototype where with every swallow, the man would jump over an obstacle or duck or something. And I was hoping patients would pick that because that was my favorite. And what I got was that patients didn't want gamification right in the biofeedback. They wanted it for long-term engagement with the app, but they thought it was too distracting. They're like, you know, when I'm out of the hospital on so many drugs that this is actually going to trip me out. I had patients who were saying, I have anxiety for this little guy that's going up and down. Like if my swallow's bad and he doesn't jump over the obstacle or if he dies, I'm going to feel terrible. (laughs) So we were getting such interesting responses. But in the end, what it came down to is that when it comes to wanting to see what your muscles are doing and whether you're doing it right, they want it straightforward biofeedback. Line go up and down. Tell me if I got it right. For the long term, like I need to stick with this app possibly forever, that's when the gamification elements came into play. So that long-term adherence. But in the in the user interface right up front, no, unfortunately for me, because I was very excited about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is so fascinating. Do you have uh, gamification or some kind of game elements to the reporting with your uh, with your um, coach? Um, no, <laughs> no. Do you no. want some? <laughs> <laughs> might be a little more fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's interesting. Well, the elements of flow and grit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least on a theoretical. Uh, level should should be able to help with adherence yeah I I love that you just as a PhD combined so many of those factors into you know just put so many external thoughts into into formulating this I love it yeah it's just kind of ideas swimming in my brain and I'm sure if I think about it enough they're percolating some good idea coffee will come out of this yeah yeah (laughs) I know you had um you had a speaker, uh, Mary Burns. Yes. She talked about exercise, dysphagia management, and you know, yeah. how, do you craft a, how do you craft a treatment program that your patients will actually adhere to? So that was like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't listen to that. And she did talk about biofeedback in that interview as well. And I, again, I don't know what the experience is in the States or for your listeners, Biofeedback is something that we like to have here. Not all clinics have it. We know it's it's meaningful and it helps, but as it turns out, not a lot of clinicians even have experience with biofeedback. So yeah, it's that- definitely a, a luxury here. Yeah, not not many. There there's been a few kind of bigger companies that some of the bigger facilities, some of the bigger corporations would have access to, but definitely not widely used. But I think now there's some other companies that are trying to come out with some more cost-effective ways, or like you said, like using an app or something like that. So it's definitely starting to be used a little bit more just because I think they've gotten the cost down on some things, but it, it is considered more of a luxury than, than something that everybody has access to, which is fortunate because I think it's, it, it should be mm-hmm. a necessity. So. Yeah, so it's it's similar to here. So we have a yeah. couple of big hospitals that have um, biofeedback technology, but not a lot of clinicians, I would say, have access to it. 
we had also while trying to, to develop this app, we we went and asked clinicians, well, what would you want at at your end of things? Like if you had patients who were using biofeedback at home on an app, um, what would you like to see at your end when you're um, remote monitoring them? And I would say that the most compelling finding from that study was that 100% of the clinicians we asked had never used EMG. And they were all, yeah, they were all uh, working with uh, adult dysphagia. So so then it became more of an education piece. I think, again, what came out of that was, okay, we need to go out and, and teach our clinicians. Yeah. What um, what biofeedback signal is? What does it actually tell you? What what does that squiggly line mean? Yeah. Can you compare between sessions? Do you need to calibrate somebody? And a lot of good work uh, you probably know has come from Dr. Steele's lab and uh, the Crary and Carnaby group. So that that's kind of what we we try to yep. show our our clinicians. But yeah, it is interesting that technology isn't as prevalent prevalent pardon me as I'd like it to be and I don't know what that is if it's an issue of resources if we can't afford it if it's an issue of it's scary because I don't understand it and I know I've never been taught how to use biofeedback with swallowing in school yeah it was on the job that I learned that so yeah I don't I don't know what it is. So it'd be yeah. interesting. I think for here, I think here it's mostly just a cost issue. There's just only so many things we can get our bosses or administrators to purchase for us. So I think that's I think that's the big barrier here. So let, let me ask let me ask you too, Gabby. I know, like you said, with um, Mary Burns' episode about how to create a treatment plan or an exercise protocol that patient, patients will stick to. How how is I guess dysphagia in in Canada do like here we have such a big there's such a big discrepancy in the education and there's some professors and some researchers that you know are are instructors in these grad programs and they teach these wonderful courses and implement so many exercises and then we have some programs that just are not keeping up with the times and they basically just all they talk about is thickened liquids and doing oral motor exercises and really some, some of these students come out of these programs and they've like never heard of actually doing a exercise program. And I didn't know if that's something that you see in Canada too, or. Um, not as much that it would stick in my head. Yeah. Um, but again, I feel like I live in a bubble. So I do live in the university <laughs> bubble. <laughs> um, and because I'm in, in the city, I feel like I see a lot of what the big centers do. Having yeah. said that, the, the clinicians we interviewed were from bigger centers, and they still hadn't had any experience with EMG enough to say, this is what I want to see. But I, I wouldn't be able, I think it would be unfair for me to comment on across Canada what, yeah. what the uh, education level is, is like. Here at the University of Alberta, I would say that um, we do get a lot of hands-on technology, which is so, so nice. Yeah. Because as a clinician, when you start, it's so much easier to be like, oh, I, I remember seeing one of these and I, I worked with it in my lab and they did force us to calibrate and interpret the data. So that's that's really nice. I know U of T has a lot of 
good uh, researchers, Steele and uh, Rosemary Martino, of course, are there. So I'll see them at Dysphagia Research Society. They're quite prolific. We have Dr. Uh, Rieger here. So I think at these two centers, we do have that level of education that you do need exercise. Yeah. You do yeah. need technology to tell you not just solely rely on technology, but that it's a big piece of yeah. what we do. Of course, you need you need the patient's input, you need your own clinical judgment, but technology can offer that extra piece that no objective opinion or sorry, subjective opinion can offer. Yeah. So that's been nice. I can't really comment on all the other schools. Of course, you'll have some SLPs here and there who are still stuck on the, on the feeding tube and um, thickened liquids and aspiration is terrible and stop uh, feeding that patient. <laughs> Yeah. I'd like to think at least in my bubble that they're outnumbered. Well, good. I like your bubble, Gabby. (laughs) (laughs) I would choose to live in that bubble any day. Uh, Yeah. No, there's some good initiatives here locally too. Um, There was recently trying to implement ITSE um, or they have, they have uh, opportunities for education. So we'll bring in speakers from the States or from um, across Canada. So it's, I think we're trying really hard as a speech pathology community. And I noticed too, you're bringing people together, which is so nice to see. We definitely do need more of a um, dysphagia medical SLP community um, so that we can rely on each other. I know um, there's a woman named Megan on who's quite um, active on Facebook and she's brought some people together. She's actually shared some of your podcasts as well. So I, it's nice to see. I know it takes a lot of work on people on the part of, of people like you to to kind of get these resources together, vet them, yeah, um, do podcasts like this. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Kelly. It is a lot of work, but it's it's meaningful work, and I'll keep doing it as long as people like hearing it. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Um. If I, I'm not too sure um, listeners ever get in touch with speakers or with you, but if anyone ever get wants to get in touch with me, I'm happy to talk more about any of the topics that I've discussed here with you. And actually above and beyond, I'm really interested in just hearing more about the the pain points from clinicians on on delivering therapy in the form of rehab exercises to patients with dysphagia and if if they had sort of like a a cloud dream of pie in the sky <laughs> vision of you know if i if only this um i i would love to hear what that is yeah. because who yeah. knows we we might be able to address some of these needs yeah i think you know and, and and i think you covered it but i think just the big issue here is just not getting that many visits or something, you know, you may only get six or seven visits with a patient instead of, you know, for some reason, some other people may get 40, you know, it just doesn't seem to make sense. But I think I love what you're doing with this, the telehealth piece, because I think there's so much that can be done there as well. You know, I think, like you said, I think a lot of patients might not come in for therapy or participate in therapy because it's just such a big time commitment or there's other issues, other ailments they have to take care of as well. So I think being able to, to alter our plans to kind of help fit their needs. And, and I think this telehealth model is definitely a really, could be a really good way to go. 
Yeah, I think so too. Like just imagine if you logged into your computer at the start of the day and said, saw, okay, so 90% of my uh, caseload is doing all their exercises, but um, John and Sally over here are really, they, they haven't logged in even in the last three days. So maybe I need to check in with them and see what's going on. And who yeah. knows, maybe one had recurrence, but maybe one just needed to come in and see you and um, yeah. then you can really focus your care a bit more. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's my 90% still a good number. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's still, that's still a good pat on the back for the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to start the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me, Gabby, so where, where is your research headed? Where, where are you going with your PhD? I, I love everything you mentioned clinically and your interests and things and kind of, where do you see this going long-term? Yeah, so um, I finished my PhD, it's been two years already now, which is kind of wild to think about. <laughs> um, and now what I do is I work with a company called True Angle Medical Technologies, I'm one of the co-founders. So I've stepped away from the pure clinical role into more of an industry entrepreneurial role, which is very exciting. It's also very challenging. It's almost like another PhD. It's um it's the opposite of what we've been trained to do as clinicians. <laughs> you have to be very business oriented and as I'm sure you know, um, kind of go go after people. Um, so that's that's what I've been doing so far. So with with my role there, I'm trying to understand what do patients need, what do patients want, um, what do clinicians need and what do they want. Um, which is why I've been reaching out to um, your audience if if they want to get in touch with me. And if there are any ways that we can address those needs and um, bring people together as you are. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I'll, um, I'll leave your, um, did you leave a good email for me here? Because I can leave that in the show notes. So if people yeah. want to reach out to you, they can. Yeah. Sure, sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. So I essentially run research now for our company and, um, uh, more of, um, I guess, marketing end as well. Cool. Yeah. I love it, Gabby. <laughs> Lots of hats. You never know where yeah. you're going to end up. I love all the hats. I know. <laughs> I can't ever just sit still with five hats. I need to wear 20 hats at once. So I totally understand that. So yeah. Awesome. Well, any, anything, any final words? No, I'm just really happy that uh, we got to meet and yeah. have a chat really excited. I hope that uh, we get to keep in touch and maybe meet you in person one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gabby. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.